think there are two times when you learn how much stuff you have. One of those is anytime you move. I don't know if you've moved any time recently that you can remember. Uh, Certainly most recently for us when we moved here and we brought two trucks, big trucks, full of stuff. And that was when we had three kids. I don't even want to think about moving with four. Um, I, I think the other time is when you take a long trip. We just got back from Orlando, and we took a lot of stuff. Our kids are the type that they like to take stuff with them. We're like, we're going to Disney World. Yeah, but I want to take my stuff for the hotel room. We're going to Disney World, but, Daddy, I want to take my stuff. You don't get this. We're going to Disney World. But they still took all their stuff, you know. So, so anyway, we take, we take stuff, and packing the van is an art. And, fellas, I don't know who packs the van in your family, uh, but, but I try to at least be the one who, you know, I want to man up and pack the van. And so it's like a puzzle, you know, and, and then Nancy comes out and tells me how it really needs to be done. But, <laughs> but anyway, I make a good attempt. And so you pack the van and you get it all in there and then you drive down the road and the first time you open the hatch in the back, everything falls out. You know, I mean, that's just the way that it works. And then you go on a long trip and if, if you go to some place where the kids like to buy stuff and our kids had a little bit of spending money that they were allotted to get something and many somethings while they were in Orlando and then you come back with more stuff and now our house right now is just like stuff everywhere from the trip that we got home yesterday evening and we just threw the stuff in the house to get it out of the van and you know, you, there are certain times when you, when you learn and realize how much stuff you have accumulated. And maybe you do a spring cleaning or you do a fall yard sale and you're going to, you know, get all this stuff. And you just, I, I get to the point, I don't know about you, I just give up. I'm like, it's not worth going through all this stuff. Just shove it back in the closet and close the door. You know, and then pile the next set of stuff right on top of it. Today I want to talk about stuff and, and the problem with stuff. And so turn with me to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. And we're picking up, of course, last week I was gone and, and, uh, and Pastor Jim, uh, I told him, I said, don't worry about trying to continue the series I'm doing or anything like that. So we just paused last week. We pick it up this week in the eighth sermon on a series on Ecclesiastes. Now, if you don't know where Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, Go to the table of contents, check it out. It's right after Proverbs. Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, then the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. A little bit about this book, just as a recap for those who maybe are just now joining us or maybe you've missed a few weeks or you've just forgotten what Ecclesiastes is about. Ecclesiastes gives us two different voices, essentially. One is known as the teacher, this person whose voice and words are seen through really the, almost the entire book up until the last little portion that we'll get to in a few weeks, but this is the person whose words you get over and over and over again. The teacher, uh, the preacher, whatever your version may say. The second voice is the voice that comes right at the end, which is really the author of the book who uses these quotations and words and, and advice, if you want to call it that, from the teacher to give us the main point of Ecclesiastes. The teacher gives us, here's what life would be like without God. The, the, the author gives us really the whole point of life, that you must fear God, trust Him, and live daily by His hand. That's really the message of Ecclesiastes. We're still, right now, in the portion of of Ecclesiastes where the teacher is going on and on about the pointlessness, the meaninglessness of life. Now, the last time that we were together, we talked about 
how even worship, even religious people in their activities, in their worship, supposed worship of God, it can be meaningless. You can simply go through the motions, you can sing the songs, you can preach the sermon, you can do all these things, and it has no purpose. It's meaningless because you don't fear God. That was the message from two weeks ago. Now, everything, and and we see this flow together today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, everything in life, whether we want to believe it's true or not, everything in life is connected to the spiritual world of our lives, uh, to our view of and our relationship with the Lord. And if you read the scripture, you'll see that one major theme that runs through the entire scripture is that our stuff is really a spiritual issue. Our stuff is not over here, and then we have God over here. As we'll see, they are woven together, and our view of God, our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, is directly affected by, and sometimes prevented, by our stuff. So that's what I want to talk about this morning as we get to the portion of Scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that addresses it. Look with me. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 6. Just so you know, a long passage of Scripture, but I'm not going to pause each time and, and go over every single verse with you, so don't worry, we won't be here till about 3 o'clock, that's okay. Um, but let's look at it. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation, because one official protects another official, and higher officials protect them. The profit of the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth is kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so will he go. So what does he gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days, and with much sorrow, sickness, and anger. Here's what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, because that is his reward. God has also given riches and wealth to every man, and he has allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives... If he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is still better off than he. For he comes in futility and he goes in darkness and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. 
And if he lives a thousand years twice, but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? All man's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage, then, does, a, does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than the wandering desire. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Whatever exists has given its name long ago, and who is man is known, and who man is, rather, is known. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for man? For who knows what is good for man in life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell man what will happen after him under the sun? You get the idea of this godless view of life. This person who's taking, let's say, take God completely out of the equation, and what do we have left? And he says here, well, you can pursue wealth and stuff. And he's going to explain to us the problems with all of that. Uh, this morning, what I, what I hope to do, as you see on the back of your bulletin, just sort of in structure form, is to give you, here are the practical problems with stuff and some explanations. And then give you what is really the biggest problem with stuff, and then the solution to the problem with stuff. Now, I'll tell you, the solution is extremely simple. I'll just tell you that up front. It, it, this, you're not going to hear anything extremely profound this morning. I, I hope that doesn't disappoint you. I hope you don't think, well, we just sent him on vacation. He's got to come back with, you know, with all kinds of profound things to say. You know, no, I went on vacation with four children to Disney World for eight straight days. I'm worn out. Be honest with you. I got nothing profound, all right? But I've got something extremely simple, but extremely difficult. I'll just tell you, it is, it is the, one of the most simple truths you'll ever hear and one of the most difficult things to see happen in your life. But I'll, I'll tell you what it is as we go along. The invitation at the end of today's sermon, I'll let you know, will be to a physical response. I don't mean that you'll jump up and down or we'll do exercises of some sort. And I'm not going to manipulate you and make you do anything whatsoever. But I will invite you to have a physical response to what we've learned from Scripture today. The goals that I have for this particular sermon, I'll just tell you, my, my goal is not to rant against people who have stuff, people who have money. We've already taken the offering. I'm not going to pass the offering plates again. I'm not going to try to get you to give and guilt you into stuff. That is, that's none of what I want to do today. But what I hope will happen is that we can allow the Scripture, not me, but the Scripture to convict us where we've gone astray and to redefine our relationship with our money and our stuff. And ultimately, to redefine our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me give you the practical problem with stuff. And I will list several other things, so you may want to jot some of these down, bracket those in your, in your Bible, and write some off to the side. But here's the overarching practical problem with stuff. The more you have, the more problems it can bring. The more stuff you have, the more problems it can bring. Now, I'm not saying that having stuff is necessarily a problem. But I think if we look at the wisdom, even from this sort of godless perspective, if we look at the wisdom that this teacher has to offer us, we're going to realize, you know what, that's true. In many cases, the more stuff you have, the more problems it can bring, whether it's trying to fit it into the van on the way home from a long trip or whether it totally ruins your life. Now, let's look at some of the explanations here that this teacher will provide. And these are, I didn't list all these on your 
on your bulletin or on the screen, but I think they'd be worth writing down or at least making a note of on your bulletin or maybe there as you bracket these and uh, draw a little line from the scriptures. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5 begin this explanation of why stuff can bring us problems. Look at it. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished. Isn't that great? If you see somebody abusing someone else, taking advantage of them, don't be shocked. Uh, That's just the way things go. Why does he say that? Because one official protects another. We've seen that in our country for however long our country's been around, haven't we? One official protects. And then what? And the higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all, and the king, representing, of course, those in charge, is served by the field. The, the more you have, the more you're tempted to step on others. You know, here, here are the practical problems it can bring. It can bring more problems, and one of those is that the more you have, the more tempted you can be to step on others. You've probably known somebody like that. They have accomplished and accumulated what they've gotten by stepping on other people to get there. Now, I'm not going to call anybody out here because we have no one at our church who is like that, right? But you know what I'm talking about, people that are like that. Folks that, that seem to say, well, whatever it takes to get to the top is just what you have to do. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And if you're not first, you're last. It's survival of the fittest, and you better do what you got to do. And that's what he's saying. These, these, these officials pervert justice and righteousness, but don't be shocked. They're just protecting each other so they can all get to the top. It's interesting that when people pursue money and stuff, that often, not always, but often, they can end up consuming not just the money and stuff, but other people in the process. The more you have, the more tempted you are, in many cases, to step on other people. And then he goes on, verse 10. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. The more you have, quite often, the more you want. The famous quote is the question posed to the billionaire, well, how much would be enough? The response is just $1 more. And that never ends. Now, you don't have to be a billionaire to always want more. This is not about how much you have, but about the direction of your heart. You say, well, I, I, do, I truly need some more. I'm not saying that you don't. But I'm saying that sometimes the problem can be the more you have, the more you want. I think of those who, who are even in college now, and the goal is to get that college degree so that they can get the high-paying job that will meet all their needs and all their wants. Nothing wrong with getting a college degree. Nothing wrong with being ambitious. But sometimes the trap can be the more you have, it feeds this desire, it says, that can never be satisfied. What does he say? The one who loves money is what? Never satisfied. And the one who loves wealth is never satisfied. Quite often, it's the more you have, the more you want. Then he goes on in verse 11. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? You realize that in many cases, the more you have, the more other people want from you? Isn't that true? You probably have somebody in your family, somebody that you're aware of, that they know a person or connected to a person who's got a lot of stuff, and they just hang around that person all the time. 
so-called friends who want something from you because of what you have. And if it's not that, then you just have more bills. You know, the more stuff you got, the more you have to insure. <laughs> the more you have to, to look out for, the more bills that you're going to have. And in some cases, the more you've got to pay people to take care of your stuff. It just seems to never end. Very practical problems. The more stuff you have, obviously, the more taxes in many cases you're going to have to pay. So there, your bills go up again. And certainly in some cases, even charities and good causes can demand from you your stuff. It says, when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. And the owner only gets to look at his stuff. He doesn't get to enjoy it. And he goes on in verse 12. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. I don't know if you know anybody who's absolutely just dirt poor and happy. I've seen people like that. They have nothing to worry about. Why? Because they don't have anything. In many cases, it can be the fact that if you don't have anything, you've got nothing to worry about. But you start adding just a little bit of stuff. And you get something that's a little nicer and some things you've got to now protect. And it keeps you awake at night, sometimes worrying about it. That's what he's saying. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Shows the picture here of this person who tries to get more and more, and when they get more and more, now they're just worried about losing it. <laughs> because he goes on to say in verse 13, there is a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth is kept by its owner to his harm. Isn't that interesting he would say that? Wealth is kept to the harm of the person who keeps it. Now again, I'm not going to take the offering again and say, hey, let's just empty our pockets because the wealth you've got is going to be to your harm. That's not my point. But he says here, wait a minute, there's a, there's a chance that what you have could be to your harm. That wealth is lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. You realize that the more you have, the more you have to lose? The more you have to worry about because the more you have to lose. Now again, hear my heart. It's not about having stuff, but it's about where your heart is with that. Because if your heart is so tightly attached to the things you have, when you lose what you have, and inevitably you will. What does it say in the next verse, verse 15? <laughs> naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. You can't take anything with you. Why? Because you brought nothing into the world. You're going to lose it all. You talk about a bad investment. If you knew that the investment that you were called to make, I go and I say, hey, I've got some money that, that I'm going to invest you know, can you help me, point, point me in the right direction, and you tell me, well, I, I've, got, I've got a place you can invest it, but you're going to lose it all. Now, let me jump at that. Isn't that incredible? Let me just, yeah, that's life. Absolutely everything you have will be lost. Isn't that comforting? That's just that's, that's the news you wanted. That's what I came back from Orlando with. How profound. Everything you have, you're going to lose. It's just all going to be gone. But isn't it true? We, we seldom stop to think that all the stuff we're accumulating, all the things we have, the homes, the cars, all the stuff, whatever it may be, inevitably, every single one of us will lose it. Well, you say, well, I'm, I'm too smart to lose You may be too smart to lose it while you still have your smarts. But one day, when either your mind or your life leaves you, you will lose it. And someone else will take it. 
The more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have, the more you have to leave behind. Oh, you say, well, good, my kids will get it. In many cases, your kids don't want your junk. Let's be honest. I remember living next door to a guy in Louisville, great guy. His name was Mr. Fenwick. And uh, Mr. Fenwick was sort of like the character in Dennis the Menace, the older man who was just sort of annoyed by things. And he was a little skeptical of our two children at the time. And he sort of, you know, they grew on him, Lucy and Hank at the time, they sort of grew on him a little bit. And, but Mr. Fenwick, he, he joked all the time. He'd say, hey, I, I'd ask him if I could borrow something. I, you know, I've got something I need to fix or whatever. And he'd say, well, come on over to the garage. I'd walk through the fence and go to the garage. And his garage was lined with stuff. I mean, I'm talking like nuts and bolts and screws and nails from the 40s that he had hung on to. Now, you may be that person. Don't take it as an insult. Mr. Fimmick was a good guy. I like him, all right? But he had all this stuff. And his joke was, he said, I just, he said, I wish I could be around when my kids have to go through all this junk. <laughs> and I, I said, that's great. He said, they're going to have to go through it all one day, all this junk. He said, he just laughed and laughed and laughed. But, you know, the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. In some cases, that's a wonderful blessing to your family. And in that case, that's not such a wonderful blessing. But he says that someone else will actually enjoy your stuff and will, will, will take over. It's a sickening tragedy, he says. Exactly as you come into the world, that's how you'll leave the world, with nothing in your hands. And then he goes on in chapter 6, and he begins to explain to us that in verse 2, God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. There is a chance that you can work your entire life waiting for the day that you get to enjoy all the fruits of your labor, and that day will never come. You know that? There is, there is a, a good chance. You know people like this who work and work and work and work and work and work and work their entire lives and, and hoping to get to the point where one day I'll be able to enjoy all that I have accumulated. God gives a man riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, but God does not allow him to enjoy it. There is a chance. You can work your whole life, and God says, you're not going to be able to enjoy and to do all the things you've always thought you were going to do. Does that make God evil? No, it's just reality. Um, and he says, instead, a stranger will enjoy them. The more you have, unfortunately, the more likely you are to depend on what you have for your happiness. And if you depend upon what you have for your happiness, and yet those things are not, maybe by God, permitted for you to actually enjoy, and you pass from this world without being able to enjoy all the things that you've worked for, what have you accomplished? Nothing. He says this is futile and a sickening tragedy. And then he goes on, and he says, Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This too is futile and a sickening tragedy. The more you have, the more disappointed you'll be when somebody else gets all your stuff. I've never met a person at the end of their life. I've never met a person who, on that deathbed or when that news comes, 
who just says, you know, I wish I'd accomplished and accumulated a whole lot more stuff. You know, in many cases, they're just busy trying to figure out who's going to get their stuff. And then the family fights over it after they're gone. And what is the point of it all? The more you have, the more disappointed you might be when it goes to someone else. And then he goes on to explain that that a stillborn child, and this is hard for us to understand because we, we see that as such a tragedy, but what he's saying is, is, is that a person who's never, ever experienced the light of day is better off, he says, than a person who works their entire life for it all to come to nothing and not even receive a proper burial, which happens. He says, I, I say a stillborn child is better off than he. The more you have, the more confused you will be when it doesn't solve your problem. There are many here today who are either in this situation or know someone who is that figure if I can just get to this point, if I can just make this level of salary, if I can just be in this position, if I can get to this stage of life, if I can have this job, whatever it may be, accomplish these things in my life, have these things, drive this car, live in that house, be able to go to these places, then, then, think everything will be okay I think at that point I'd be able to to settle down I'd be able to breathe I'd be able to relax the more you have the more disappointed and confused you will be when it does not solve your problems there are practical issues with stuff you've seen some of those but let me give you the biggest problem with stuff those things are all huge problems the more you have, the more you want, never satisfied. I mean, the more you have, the more you have to lose and worry about. Those are big problems. You may be experiencing those, but let me tell you, the biggest problem with stuff is that it can easily take the throne of your life. All those other things pale in comparison. If I were to put it in cold, hard terms, those other things, I don't really care if you experience the fact that you're worried about your stuff. I don't care if you miss this point. If you miss the fact that stuff can take the throne of your life when God alone deserves that, that place, I really don't care if you get the fact, you know, he, he can understand. It really does cause me to worry. I'm not worried about if you feel like I can relate to that. I want you to get this truth because all those practical problems come from this problem right here. That the biggest problem with stuff is that it can take the throne of your life. If you want to mark a cross-reference, let me read you a little story from, from Luke chapter 18, one that you're probably, in some cases, familiar with. Jesus has an interaction with, here, with, with a man here. A ruler asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. You've probably heard that preached before. Maybe you've heard it taken out of context, and you've been chided and guilted into going selling a bunch of stuff and giving it to the church and all that. That's not the point. The point is what or whom is on the throne of your life. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, another familiar passage of scripture if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, 
Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, verse 19, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in verse 24, no one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. And then Hebrews chapter 13. Just one more reference here. I want to write that down. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself, talking about the Lord, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The biggest problem with stuff and money is that it easily, and I mean easily, takes the throne of your life. So I wonder, what informs and guides and dictates the, ma the majority of the decisions that you make regarding your job, your money, your stuff, your future? Is it Scripture? Is it the Lord? Or is it, is it your bottom line? Is it your pocketbook? Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't consider the bottom line in the pocketbook. You make decisions with godly wisdom. But if we're putting them in order, which one comes first? Which one is the basis? Which one is the guidebook? Scripture seems to offer very little middle ground here. You're either going to be a slave of money and stuff, it says, or a slave to the Lord. Being a slave to the Lord actually leads to freedom from the slavery and all the problems that money and stuff can bring, and it certainly leads to eternal life. But you can't do both. You're either going to obey what God says about your stuff and your money, or you're going to obey your stuff and your money. Period. God commands contentment. He commands trusting Him. He commands generosity, which includes giving. He commands that we consider other people more important than stuff. But when stuff is on the throne of your life, you'll never experience contentment or trusting God or true generosity. You'll always consider stuff more important than people. The problem that we have with our stuff is that it can take the throne of our lives, and unfortunately, as we see in Ecclesiastes, it doesn't satisfy. It's a never-ending game. It's a hole with no bottom. We keep digging further and further and further. Many people waste their lives pursuing what they cannot ultimately keep. And all they wind up with is the wind in their fingers as it escapes them. It's probably easy to tell if you're honest this morning what or whom is on the throne of your life. And it may be that you come face to face with the fact, you know what, I don't want to admit this. I don't want anybody else to know, but I I really believe that, that I am pursuing stuff or money or things or whatever more than I'm pursuing the Lord. And if that's the case, then let me give you the solution to the problem. Very simple, but extremely difficult. The solution begins when you dethrone stuff. Look back at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 18, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat 
drink, and experience good, and all the labor one does under the sun during the, the few days of the life God has given him, because that is his reward. Why? Then look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. How do you dethrone stuff? It begins with an eternal perspective on life. It begins with an eternal perspective. Life is short. Eternity is forever. I can't take this stuff with me. My stuff, my money, the things I have cannot satisfy my deepest needs. And so I will not seek from money and stuff what they cannot give me. With an eternal perspective, as you dethrone stuff in your life this week, you may find that that you're motivated to simplify some things in your life. We went through our closets not long ago. I consider myself a pretty simple guy when it comes to what I wear. I have like three suits that I just rotate. Some of you probably noticed that by now. I have three maybe, and I, you know, I'll mix it up occasionally. I got a few ties. I wear the same white shirt almost every week. I try to be pretty simple in what I wear. I came up with so much stuff out of my closet. I'm like, where did this come from? I don't have this much stuff that I'm not using. And we just had piles and piles of that. We, it was almost as if we just said, you know what? what? What are we using all this stuff for? You may be motivated this week as you dethrone stuff to say, I'm cleaning it out. We're going through the house. And that may be your response to this scripture to say, we're taking this stuff and we're going to donate it or we're going to give it away, whatever it may be. You may find yourself motivated to scale back just a little. You realize that you and you alone set your standard of living? You and you alone set your standard of living. Now you say, well, I, you know, the neighborhood I live, well, okay, then move. Let me be honest. I'm not trying to tell you to move, but if you just say, well, I can't, you know. You and you alone, you determine your standard of living. Maybe you need to scale back. Maybe you need to work a little bit less. You say, well, you know, I got all this stuff. <laughs> there you go. Maybe you just need to hang out more with your family this week and some friends. Maybe you need to be more generous. You realize with an eternal perspective that you begin to think, you know what, what can I make an investment in that has not just a temporary return, but an eternal return? You know what those investments are in? You know what will last forever? People. People will last forever. I want you to know that if you decide to live with an eternal perspective, that it's a radical departure from what the majority of our world lives with, particularly here in America. It is a radical departure. Don't expect a lot of people to go with you. Don't expect people to stand on the sidelines and say, we just, you're so incredible leading the way to this new way of eternal perspective living. Expect them to look at you like you have lost your mind. Seriously. If you live with an eternal perspective saying, I'm dethroning the stuff in my life, expect people to look at you and say things about you that, that insinuate that you are crazy. The missionary who was martyred, or one of the five missionaries martyred in Ecuador back in the 50s, Jim Elliott, he put it this way, and maybe you've heard the quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And too many times we get that backward. 
we are gaining things that we are ultimately going to lose and we, we are failing to invest in the things that ultimately will last forever. There are eternal consequences to the decisions that we make about money and stuff during our lives. And if we don't dethrone the stuff, then we can never do the next part, which is to enthrone God. The teacher says, here is what I have seen to be good. Verse 18 of chapter 5. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. God has also given riches and wealth to every man, and and he has allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God, for he does not, this is talking about the man who, who receives a gift, does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. You say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that just seem to contradict the other part which just says that God doesn't allow the guy to enjoy it? Let's put it in perspective here. God has given us all and blessed us all with the things that we need and many of the things that we want. And then it's up to us, will we enjoy them for what they are? And the only way we can do that, the only way that God can truly be enthroned in our lives is the very last part when it says he does not offer consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. If you want to enthrone God, I would challenge you to become preoccupied with things that bring true joy. Be preoccupied with joy. God's daily provision in your life, each new day, when I lead my children in prayer at night, we say many of the same things, kind of in a routine quite often. But we always say, dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Hank asked me one time, he said, Dad, why do we thank Jesus for the day? I said, because we're not promised that day. That's why we thank him that we got up that morning and we're able to breathe air and we thank him for the day that he just gave us. Maybe your joy would come from just a new day. Or from a hard day's work and you thank the Lord that he's given you the ability to go and work on that particular day. Or maybe gratification and gratitude for what God has given you to enjoy. As you drive to work or as you walk from place to place, what he has given you along the way to enjoy. True joy doesn't come from the stuff you have, but it comes from salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from the new mercies every morning that the Bible promises. It comes from peace beyond all understanding that the Scripture tells us about. It comes from enjoying the simple things in life. It comes from beginning every day with a goal of just enjoying what God has given you that day, of pursuing daily enjoyment rather than pursuing stuff. It comes through investing in what will last. Jesus himself even said, According to Paul, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Our joy that we have, that God has given to us to to live out, is a product of an eternal perspective. Paul lived with an eternal perspective, and he wrote about it quite often. There's a famous verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But if you read the couple of verses before that, You realize that what Paul is talking about, he tells the Philippians there, I'm thankful that you've contributed toward my ministry and I appreciate your help. He says, I have have been in situations where I've had all kinds of stuff and in situations where I've had nothing. And he says, I have learned the secret of being content no matter the circumstance. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
You say, I'm not sure I can live that way. I'm not sure that, that I can have God enthroned in my life and I can dethrone stuff. Only through Jesus Christ can you do those things. And you can even do that, all things, through Christ who gives you the strength to do it. Paul would later write to Timothy, Be content, enjoy what you have, view everything as a gift from God. He would tell Timothy to, to instruct the rich folks to be generous, to use what they have for God's fame and His purposes. And it's true in the lives of individuals, and it's true for our church as well. As we consider our priorities and what we should invest and what we should spend toward, we need to spend and invest toward, and I believe we are, toward the things that will last forever, just like those children that gather every week. There is only one person who has rightly earned the throne of your life. And that person does not reside in your wallet or your bank account or in your home or in your car. <laughs> that person is Jesus Christ. He who gave his life for yours, a death you and I both deserve to die. He alone, because of that, has earned the right to reign and rule in our hearts. And so I encourage you and challenge you this morning not to be convicted to come and pour money into the offering plate, but to be convicted and challenged to consider whether Jesus truly reigns and rules in your life or is something else on the throne of your life. The physical response that I'd like to invite you to, and Danny, if you wouldn't mind to just come and play softly, and then we'll close in a few moments with our closing hymn. But the physical response that I would like to invite you to is this. You are under no obligation. I'll just tell you that. In just a moment, I'm going to kneel here in the front. And I would, I would invite you, if you say, you know what? This stuff kind of hits home with me. And I'm not a rotten, awful, nasty, mean, terrible person. That's not why I'm coming to bow in prayer this morning. But I tell you what. I really need to dethrone stuff, and I need God to be enthroned in my life. Maybe you'd come and say, I just submit my life to Jesus Christ, or I'm just going to keep turning my stuff over to Him. But where, maybe where you are, you'd kneel there, or you'd come and you'd kneel here in a physical response, and here's what we're going to do. I got my wallet right here. I got like $3. I'm going to set this, I don't take it, that's all I got, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm going to set this in front of me, placed before the Lord, and I'm going to lead us in just a very simple prayer, very simple, Jesus take the throne of my life, here's my stuff, give me an eternal perspective, keep me occupied with what brings true joy Take the throne of my life. That'll be our prayer. And you don't have to leave your wallet here, all right? I'm not going to collect it. But maybe that would be symbolic enough for you to say, Lord, I am done being governed and controlled by my stuff. And I want you in charge of my life, whatever that means. And then all this week, you'd begin your day the same way, placing yourself and your stuff under the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, you do with me and my stuff what you want. You have total control. I'm going to kneel here. If you're so inclined and you feel called and led, then you join me. And if not, 
kneel where you are, bow your head, and I'll lead us in this prayer as we place ourselves and our stuff before the Lord, enthroning Him, dethroning our stuff.